Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 28. The day of the Lord. And afterwards, I will put out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are here with us by your Spirit. Lord, by your Spirit, would you lighten our dark minds so that we would understand what you would have us understand today. And by your Spirit, would you melt our hard hearts that we would be changed Amen. I wonder if you've ever had a totally unexpected surprise. A time perhaps when, out of the blue, you found yourself in an incredible or wonderful situation or experience. My wife, Dawn, my wife Dawn tells me of her granny's golden wedding anniversary, when Dawn's granddad said that he was going to take her out for a celebratory meal they made to her to what seemed to be a bit of a detour on the way. They went by the church, and stepping through the door, they realized that the church was filled with family and friends who had gathered to put on a surprise party. Dawn's granny was totally delighted, and somewhat uncharacteristically for her, rendered completely speechless. Well, for the original hearers of Joel's prophecy, recorded for us here, Coming to this section may have been a similar experience for them. Verse 28 and following would have been possibly such an unexpected and wonderful twist that it may well have left them scratching their heads in surprise or or even their breath taken away from them. Well, perhaps we should recap on the story so far. We are unclear as to exactly when Joel prophesied. There were a range of options from the 9th century BC to the 3rd century BC. But what we do know is that he was addressing a people who had been devastated by an invasion of locusts, which Joel identified to be God's army, God's people, 
were being judged for their apostasy, for having abandoned God and having forgotten his covenant. God's people are consequently experiencing a foretaste of the day of the Lord, a day when it was expected that God would destroy his enemies and deliver his people once for all. It would have been particularly shocking for the people to realize that it was they that were being reckoned as God's enemies and so were facing his wrath and judgment. And having interpreted the situation to the people with prophetic insight, Joel then called on the people to repent, to return to their God who was compassionate and merciful. The people presumably responded because in chapter 2, verse 18, we're told that the Lord took pity on his people, removing the plague of locusts, providing abundant rains and abundant harvest, and even restoring to them the years that the locusts had taken away. The locust invasion represented and enacted God's judgment on his wayward people. And the great harvest and prosperity that followed represented their being forgiven and restored. And as God's forgiven, restored people emerging from the deep darkness of desolation, they received in the verse immediately before our reading the promise of the presence of God in their midst. But it's here that we encounter a surprising twist, an incredible promise. God, through Joel, promises that sometime in the future, the future um, indicated by the word afterwards and the reference to sons and daughters, a future generation, God promises that he will pour out his spirit on all people. On some unspecified future generation, God's spirit will be poured out a picture of extravagant activity, a monsoon of God's spirit poured onto a thirsty people, which picks up on the image of abundant rain in chapter 2. But why would that have been such a shocking and wonderful idea to Joel's hearers? To understand that question, we need to get into their heads. It's an important principle of biblical interpretation to understand what something would have meant in its original context and to its original hearers before trying to apply it to our situation. So what would they have understood about God's Spirit? Well, it's clear from the Old Testament that God's Spirit was understood to be active in Israel's history. God's Spirit had been active in creation. Genesis 1, brooding over the waters. But the subsequent activity of God's Spirit was in empowering specific individuals to provide leadership to God's people. Amongst others, the Bible explicitly mentions God's spirit being active in the lives of Joseph, Moses, Joshua, the judges, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and in Saul and David. And Bible references for all those are available on request. But as well as the political leaders, God's spirit was also active in the lives of the prophets, such as Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and so on. And so God's Spirit was only really known to be active in a few special people, a few individuals in God's anointed leader or in his chosen prophet. But there is a fascinating episode in Israel's history that seems to break this rule and hints at a different future. If you would turn with me to page 147 in the Bibles, if you have them in front of you, Let's look up Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. 
page 147. Numbers 11 records a time when Moses was almost overwhelmed by the loneliness of leadership. He was frustrated by the waywardness of the Israelites, exhausted and with a growing sense of failure. In verse 14, we read that Moses cried out to God, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. The Lord responds by sharing out Moses' burden of leadership by taking of the spirit that was on him and putting it on 72 elders. But this provoked an objection from Joshua, who was at the time a recognized leader, and who was presumably jealous of the provision of God's spirit to individuals who weren't really qualified. But in verse 29, and this is a key verse, so verse 29, Moses famously responds, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. The particular role that God's spirit was seen to have was one of revelation and guidance. The prophet brought God's word to the ruler and to the people, hence the formulaic, thus says the Lord, bringing God's word in order to challenge and to guide. This role of God's spirit is also made clear in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is referred to by Jesus as the spirit of truth in John 14, who would teach and remind Paul's letters also stress this role. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that we have received the Spirit so that we may understand what God has freely given. The Spirit of God is given to lead and to truth, to guide and to reveal God's will. This role of the Spirit is emphasized too in our passage. In verse 28, we read that the giving of the Spirit will result in prophecy, speaking on behalf of God. It will result in dreams and visions, and both of those will recognize ways in the Old Testament in which God sometimes spoke to people. The Spirit is given to enable the revelation of God to humans. But why do humans need to have such things revealed to them? Why can't can't we use our God-given intellect and just work such things out? Many people object to the whole notion of revelation, the idea that God needs to tell us certain things about himself. That he needs to tell us about himself, about ourselves, about his plans. But that objection is wholly unbiblical. Christianity is a religion of revelation, which is rooted in the historical revelation of God in Jesus and witnessed to in Scripture. That's not to say that human rationality is useless. But without revelation, it is simply inadequate. There are certain truths, axioms if you like, that cannot be proved, that we cannot work out and simply have to be accepted with intellectual humility as an act of faith and reason builds on that foundation. This idea is concisely expressed in the famous motto of Anselm, the medieval Archbishop of Canterbury. Faith-seeking understanding. He said it in Latin, but I won't attempt that. 
It's human pride, which is one of the most basic and primal of human sins, that thinks that we can discover all there is to know. Intellectual pride is, of course, prevalent in a place like Oxford. But this modern tendency is actually opposed to one of the founding principles of the universities, which acknowledge that God is the source of all understanding. Hence Oxford's motto, the Lord is my light, which is taken from Psalm 27. Another version of intellectual pride can be found in religious traditions that think that we can find our way to enlightenment through our own efforts. As long as we apply the correct meditation strategy or just spend long enough doing it. But again, this won't do. The Bible is clear. Without revelation, humans are not only intellectually limited, but we are spiritually blind. As Paul puts it, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Without the illuminating spirit of God, we are in spiritual darkness, ignorant of God, ignorant of ourselves, and ignorant of his plans. And so, according to the Bible, the crucial role of God's spirit is that of revelation. It's that of telling humans things that they cannot otherwise know or work out about God about spiritual realities, about the future. And Joel's hearers would have thought in these terms. The Spirit enabled the prophets to bring God's word to the people, as in fact he was doing through Joel. And so for Joel's hearers to hear that God was promising in a future generation to pour out his Spirit on all people was tantamount to making the promise that all God's people would be prophets. Which is, of course, exactly what Moses wished for in Numbers 11, that all God's people would be prophets. Our passage from Joel is best known from being quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Peter confidently identified the amazing goings-on of that day with the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Pentecost, the annual celebration of harvest, was the day when the first fruits of the harvest were brought by the people to the temple. On this particular Pentecost, however, it was another kind of harvest that was being enjoyed. The gift of God's Spirit, which was the first fruits of full inheritance. God's whole people, irrespective of age, sex, sex, or social status, from that day onwards, have had poured onto them God's Spirit. As we learn in verses 28 and 29, there is no discrimination in the activity of God's Spirit. Sons and daughters, on the old and the young, men and women, even those who are slaves, which is the best translation. Every single one of God's people, from that great day onwards, are equipped by God's Spirit to be his prophets. All Christians are called and equipped to be prophets of God. And just as the Old Testament prophets were equipped by God's Spirit to speak God's word to rulers and to the people, so is the church today. In his day, it was only Joel. Joel was the only one who had seen the situation through God's eyes. And with God's words, spoke judgment and hope to the people. 
In this, the new age of the Spirit, it's envisaged that all God's people would share the prophet's understanding of God. Brothers and sisters, we are like a whole nation of Joel's bringing God's word to the world. But what is to be the message that this prophetic people, the church, you and me, are to bring? It's the same message that all God's prophets bring. It's the message that's spelled out for us in the remainder of our passage. It's a message of judgment and of salvation. Verses 30 and 31 warn of the coming terrible day of the Lord, a prominent theme in Joel so far. It's accompanied by signs reminiscent of the war field, blood, fire, billows of smoke. The dreadful day when all God's enemies will be defeated and destroyed. Chapter 3 goes on to speak more of this day when the nations will be judged. All humans will one day stand before the throne of the Holy One of Israel to give an account of their lives. Though we'd rather not, we, God's prophets, have to warn of God's impending judgment of the world. To many people, it might sound like we're standing in judgment over them, claiming to be holier than thou. But this is not really the situation at all. We are all in the same boat, a boat from which we all need to be rescued. And to not warn our fellow passengers of the peril that they are in is hardly loving. It's certainly not an easy job, as many of the prophets in the Old Testament found, when rulers and people do not get the message that they want to hear. But that is not all that we have to say. Praise God for verse 32. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have a glorious message of salvation. The Christian gospel. The Christian gospel. Of course, a message of salvation, which only makes sense once we first explain the predicament that we're in, and what we need to be saved from, that we're all sinners before a holy God. But we do have good news for the world. Anyone can be saved from the power of sin in their lives, saved from the fear of death, and ultimately saved from God's judgment. It's because Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, that we can go free, not guilty, before God. It's the wonderful gospel message of new life in Christ that God's prophets have to proclaim. The church is to be like a lighthouse, warning of the wrecking rocks ahead and showing the safe passage through. And just as the electricity powers the bulb in that lighthouse, so the Holy Spirit enables and empowers our witness as we shine in a dark world. We must, as prophets of God, warn the world of impending judgment of the day of the Lord. But there will be survivors of that day, as we read in verse 32. Those who call on the name of the Lord, who have thrown themselves on God's mercy 
in response to his call. And God's call is delivered by us. We have made reference already to the Acts 2 Pentecost passage in which Peter quotes directly from Joel. I conclude by referring to the other place in the New Testament where there is a direct quotation from our passage. In his letter to the Romans, chapter 10, Paul quotes verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He then goes on to ask, how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? The answer is, of course, that they can't. But we, God's holy nation of prophets, on whom God's Spirit has been poured out, have been called, equipped, and sent to speak God's word to our generation so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you are not a God who has left us in the dark, that you have taken the initiative to reveal yourself to us, and your plan of salvation. Thank you for that immense privilege of being called and equipped to be your prophets to our generation. Lord, give us courage, give us boldness, give us clarity as we speak for you, as we call those around us to depend on you, to throw themselves on your mercy so that everyone who calls on your name may be saved. Amen.